AIPCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity, collaboration, and creativity. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes. Hey, everyone. A quick note before we get into the episode. We want to hear from you. What's the topic you want to hear about on an episode of The Future of Everything? Send us something you'd like us to report on. Email foepodcast at wsj.com. Thanks for listening, and now, on to the show. No matter where you are on Earth, at any given moment, there are thousands of satellites zooming by overhead. Almost 12,000 of them as of October 2023, according to the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs. And a lot of satellites are constantly beaming things back to the ground like images, weather data. You might even be streaming this podcast thanks to a satellite. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite platform. But there's one particular satellite in orbit that's trying to figure out something new. It's running experiments for scientists at Caltech who think there may be a way to beam back not just information, but energy. Solar power from space. Instead of just covering giant areas with solar collectors, you could beam the energy in a more intense way and get the energy exactly where you need it. That's journalist Corey S. Powell. He wrote about this satellite and its experiments for the Wall Street Journal. In space, the sun is always shining. You get your energy 24-7. So you could have solar in space and solar on the ground, and they actually work together really nicely. It could be the solar energy that never shuts down. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Danny Lewis. And while it sounds like something ripped from science fiction, Corey says the early results from these experiments have been promising. Meaning one day, new technology being tested out above our planet could help deliver completely wireless power from space, beamed directly to Earth. Stick around. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Corey, we're finally at a point now where, after decades, ground-based solar power is really starting to take off. So why collect solar power from space? The big challenge with renewables, with both solar and wind, is their intermittent nature. You have day and night. You have clouds. You have times when the wind isn't blowing. So you need what's called baseload power. You need some energy that's going all the time. So whenever you plug into your wall socket there's energy there. Whenever industry needs it, there's energy there. That's the appeal of space-based solar power. It's clean, continuous energy from space that's always on. In principle, you can beam it anywhere on Earth. So if you want to send it to an emergency zone or disaster zone, if you want to send it to a rural area that's completely off the grid, or if you want to send it to a combat zone, for instance, you can just redirect your power beam from space and all of a sudden you have essentially a power plant where there was no power plant before. So back in January, a team from Caltech launched a satellite called the Space Solar Power Demonstrator into orbit. What are they trying to figure out? The Space Solar Power Demonstrator is basically designed to 
test three core technologies that you need. One is the actual solar cells, the solar panels. How do you convert that efficiently to something where you can take the energy from the solar panel, in this case a microwave beam, and beam it to another place so that you can use it? And then finding a way to build really large, cheap structures in space so that you could hold all this stuff together. How large are we talking about? Even the International Space Station is not that big compared to what we're talking about here. If you want to do the kind of energy scale that you get from a, a sizable power plant on Earth, you're talking about solar satellites that are on the order of a mile wide. So the next step would be to build a slightly larger collector and then start thinking about, okay, well, how would, could you string together you know, five of these or 10 of these or 100 of these? And can you? Well, remember the old like snakes in a can, the toy you have as a kid where you uncork it and the snakes pop out? That's the basic idea. You want a structure that's packed up tight in a very, very little box or canister under tension. You send it out into space and then it expands into something really large, really lightweight, but really stable. That's one of the experiments that, on this Caltech demonstrator. So that's one part of this experiment. But what about actually beaming energy wirelessly? What are the researchers trying to figure out, and what have they found out so far? The most notable success from the Caltech demonstrator is from an experiment called MAPLE. And MAPLE stands for the Microwave Array for Power Transfer Low Orbit Experiment. Good acronym. Yeah. <laughs> it saves a lot of breath. MAPLE is the part of this demonstrator that takes electricity in, turns it into microwaves, beams it, steers it, directs it, and then actually uses it to light up little LEDs to prove that they're converting the microwaves back into electricity. This is run by Ali Hajimiri at Caltech. Electromagnetic waves do contain energy. The question is that how can you send it efficiently? It's small. It sent this microwave beam about one foot at first, but it's the first time, as far as we know, that anybody has demonstrated that at all. It's really the initial proof of principle that you can do this, you can do it in space, you can do it on a very constrained budget, very lightweight, all these things that you would need if you're ever going to build big practical solar satellites there. So being able to do this, being able to do it repeatedly and show that you have very tight control over the process, that's a pretty big deal. How did they manage to make that work? This project has been running for about a decade, and Ali Hajimiri and his team developed a whole new type of low-cost, flexible electronics to make this thing work, really with an eye toward not just this experiment, but what comes after and then what comes after that. If you do it with some sort of a controllable electronically steer and you have this always available dispatchable power, meaning that you can actually send it where you need, when you need, and as much as you need. And the idea here is that you can provide power to areas where you don't have energy access. For example, in Puerto Rico, hurricane knocks out the system. So what you could do, the beauty of this thing is that, again, the receivers can be also very lightweight and similarly designed. So mm -hmm. you can have these like sheets that you roll open. You can think about these mats that you roll open. Yeah. And what they do is basically you just have it and then plug it into the system and then start powering it and you send your power there. And when you're done, like a year later, when the, the power is restored six months later, three months later, you just basically unroll it, unwrap it and pack it and then use it for the next thing. The real idea is they send it one foot so that you can then do 10 feet, 100 feet, 1,000 feet, and all the way down to the ground. And in fact, they built a little window into the side of this satellite so that they could send a microwave beam all the way down to the ground. And then the Caltech receivers on the ground picked up the signal 
They didn't actually turn it back into electricity, but they collected it as a signal to prove that this little demonstrator really was sending a beam that you could pick up on the ground that would travel the distance and that, in principle, you could be using for the next generation experiment where you do full-on power beaming from the satellite to Earth. That first microwave signal sent from the satellite was small. So how much bigger would it have to be to send electricity from orbit to the Earth? And would it be safe? More on that after the break. This message is brought to you by Nuveen. Nuveen has provided investment excellence for 125 years. A lot has changed, but one thing that remains constant, including the different types of durable income in portfolios, can help investors meet their goals. With expertise across income and alternatives, Nuveen continues to expand its capabilities while maintaining its legacy as a leading investment manager. Visit Nuveen.com to learn more. Investing involves risk. Loss of principle is possible. So you said microwave beams. Are we talking about the appliance in my kitchen? We're actually talking almost exactly like the appliance in your kitchen, uh, to be honest. There's this basic problem that, okay, making solar power in space, cool idea. How do you get it to the ground? Right. Well, it turns out one of the easiest ways to do this is to convert it into a microwave beam. They don't care about clouds. They don't care about rain. And they're relatively low frequency, low energy. So the idea is... You could send a beam that has enough energy to be useful when you collect it on the ground, but not so much energy that you freak people out that they're going to get blasted by, let's say, a laser beam. (laughs) Lasers are a much more challenging technology, first of all, because they don't go through clouds, but also as soon as you tell people that you're beaming lasers from space, there's a much higher freakout factor. Yeah, I can see that. Uh... (laughs) It has a a very... It feels very billionaire super weapon. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I was always told, like, don't stand in front of the microwave as a kid. And I imagine a microwave beam sending power back from space w- would be a lot more powerful than what's heating up my rice and beans, right? This is one of the big technical challenges and one of the trade-offs that the proponents of space solar power are dealing with. The more energy you put into the beam, the more efficient it is, the better it is at getting power from space down to the ground, but also then the more intense and potentially dangerous that beam is. So the current schemes try to strike a a middle ground that you have something on the order of 100 watts per square meter. You could walk through the beam and as long as you're not staying there for a really long period of time, it's benign. But even at that level, what does that do to birds? What does that do to wildlife? If you happen to be living nearby, is there some leakage? What if the beam switches off its designated location and ends up hitting the planet somewhere else. The real question is, is this completely safe? And the answer is, we think so, but we don't know. And you know, if these early experiments are successful, believe me, that's going to be one of the next big hurdles is proving that this really is very safe. If the satellite has to be a square mile in size, how big do the receiver stations have to be on the ground then? So partly depends on how intense you're willing to go, which goes back to this question of what's safe. The current level of energy density that some scientists think is safe would require about 25 square miles of collecting area for two gigawatts of power. The more diffuse you make these beams that you send from space, the more land you need to take up on the ground for collecting this energy. All of the infrastructure that goes into a coal or an oil-powered plant, where you're drilling, 
where you're transporting, where you're loading and unloading fuel, the plant itself, the footprint of any kind of power is pretty large. So when I say 25 square miles, that sounds like a lot, but when you start to think about what that would mean in real practical terms, it's not quite so bad. So this is like a lot of engineering. And plus, you've got to deal with, you know, the cost of sending these out into space. So how much would this end up costing? <laughs> Nobody knows. That, <laughs> that is the big question mark here. It depends so much on launch costs and construction costs and all these other different factors. So we're not going to know until you test it more. And also, the more you develop it, the cheaper it's going to get. Launch costs are dropping quickly. So you can see we're on a path that it's going to become more affordable. The question is, is it going to become actually cheap? Is it going to become cost competitive with building a whole ton of energy storage on the ground? But those technologies are enabling technologies for a lot of other things. Japan has been studying this for a long time. Their projects have been really just at the research stage, but recently the Chinese government has shown a lot of interest in developing this technology. There's also a very interesting project being run by the European Space Agency called Solaris. The idea is to see, could a constellation of solar space satellites significantly improve the ability of Europe to cut their greenhouse emissions and to really ramp up green energy much more aggressively than they've been able to? So we're going to start seeing answers to these things very soon. You know, it's not like space-based solar power is going to take over instantly, but I think we're going to find out just over the next two or three years, you know, is it viable and are people interested in it enough that they're willing to make the investment and really start to see, okay, if you scale this up, what can you do with this technology? Is this really something that could be giving us, like I said, this continuous clean energy that lets you balance out the equation and really think about whole global economy that runs on renewables? Corey S. Powell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ogenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. This episode was produced by me, Danny Lewis. Our fact checker is Aparna Nathan. Michael Laval and Jessica Fenton are our sound designers and wrote our theme music. Catherine Millsop is our supervising producer. Aisha Al-Muslim is our development producer. Scott Salloway and Chris Zinsley are the deputy editors. And Falana Patterson is the head of news audio for The Wall Street Journal. Like the show? Tell your friends. And leave us a five-star review on your favorite platform. Thanks for listening. ServiceNow is the intelligent platform that puts AI to work for people across every corner of your business, all in a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow.